Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett. In this series, we want to demystify the worlds of finance and investment. We're going to be speaking with industry experts, strategists, fund managers, and financial planners. We'll hear from investment professionals who are at the top of their game, but also entrepreneurs who need investment, technology specialists disrupting the world of investment, and good old-fashioned active allocators of capital. Who is leading the charge? Who is disrupting? Who is being disrupted? How does the frenetic political and economic backdrop feed into the investment process and really understand why we invest in the first place? Investors who have had a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds have done pretty well over the last 30 years. Although with equity markets once again pushing up at all-time highs and interest rates low or indeed negative, it's hard to make a strong case that those returns will be replicated for the next 30 years. Make way, therefore, for my guest this week, Luke Hyde-Smith, co-manager of the Waverton Real Assets Fund. In this episode, we discuss the problems in seeking returns in traditional asset classes and outline the opportunity, as he sees it, within the real asset universe. We define the universe, discuss how it's changed, and go through some of his more interesting ideas. This is the Why Invest podcast. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. Luke Hyde-Smith, co-manager of the Waverton Real Assets Fund. Welcome to the podcast. Luke, we're going to start by defining the universe. Um, what are real assets? Thank you very much for... Uh, having me on, Doug. Uh, real assets in our mind are predominantly assets that are physically backed, often with inflation-linked cash flow streams designed to provide a real total return over the medium to long term. In our mind, we've uh, categorised the universe across five core real asset classes. Property, infrastructure, asset finance, commodity and specialist lending. Now, this is a broad universe, but they do share some common characteristics. Namely, some element of economic sensitivity, the inflation-linked cash flow streams I've, uh, I've previously mentioned, those are often delivered in an attractive uh, income stream. And finally, our argument and our belief is there's some relative uh, valuation opportunity in many of these assets. We can come on to discuss that later. We'll come on to discuss some of the examples. But taking a step back, how big is the market? And, and has, has the real assets universe um, grown over the last, let's say, 10 years? Well, the universe here is, is enormous. If you think about uh, you know, the, 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 the assets that underpin the global economy, be it infrastructure, property, uh, commodities, specialist lending, etc., you know, this, is, this is a big, big universe. I mean, trillions of dollars. And as you know, we, 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 we invest in uh, these assets via listed vehicles. So you know, our fund is a, is a USITS daily dealing fund. So that does narrow our available investment universe somewhat. But in terms of the total addressable market, you know, we're talking many trillions of uh, dollars. And then let's think about how they fit within the sort of multi-asset portfolios. Uh, why, why did we include them as, a, um, as, a, as an investment? Yeah, no, I think good, good point. I mean, why would even, why, why investors uh, should consider uh, real assets at this juncture? And, you know, what's the reason? You know, why are we, why are we positive on the asset class? And why do we think that they deserve merit now? Well, there's a number of reasons there, but one of them is, uh, you know, is the performance of traditional asset classes over the last 30 years. And I'm thinking... So stocks and bonds. Yeah, I'm thinking mm-hmm. specifically government bonds mm-hmm. here. 
You know, they have been fabulous investments now for well over uh, 30 years. And that has been driven by a big fall in the yield. So if you were looking at the UK government bond index 25, 30 years ago, you were getting double digit yields. Currently, lending money to the UK government for 10 years, you get 0.15%. In nominal terms, they're not even thinking about inflation there. Not even inflation, not in real terms, not inflation adjusted, etc. Just 0.15% per annum in terms of a coupon that you get for lending money to the UK government of 10 years. Now that big fall from double digits, 0.15, has been a tremendous boom for the capital value of those fixed income instruments. In our mind, and arguably mathematically, it's impossible for that to be repeated unless you think government bond yields are going to minus... 10%, which I think is extremely uh, unlikely. Now, we're not saying investors should not have any exposure to certain elements of the government bond market. They do have a purpose. They tend to do better better when markets are are volatile and and fall. But that big return that you have received, or many investors have, have, have received, is very unlikely to be repeated. And in our mind, real assets, which are a quasi equity, quasi fixed income, depending on where you are in the real asset universe, attractive yields, often long-dated cash flows, inflation protection, have a role to play in portfolios to help investors generate return in a part of the portfolio that they have previously received return in, but may struggle to do so ongoing. So you mentioned that they're sort of quasi-equity, quasi-bonds. So how would you expect them to perform relative to equities and bonds? Um, and how much risk do you need to take for that performance? Yeah, I think, you know, very important to, uh, to consider this. And so now, I mentioned those five real asset classes at the beginning. You know, those, that, is, that is a very, very broad and wide universe. So within that, you can have very, very different risk and return profiles. So if we take, for example, infrastructure, where, you know, some parts of the infrastructure universe are, are, are quasi-government-linked cash flow streams, so akin to a fixed income or government bond. Not, 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 not quite. Now, that would be, in our mind, something that would perform very, very well uh, in risk-off environments. Some examples of in- infrastructure uh, investments that you're looking at. So, so infrastructure, that would quasi like that, you know, schools, hospitals, mm. etc. You know, these are essential things that are built for the public use, but can often be incorporated with uh, private companies doing that. Now, those who perform well in a uh, poor economic environment, in risk-off markets, etc. At the other end of the spectrum, or just going halfway up the spectrum, you know, you've got a little bit more value add. So you can have certain areas of the property market, so potentially long-dated cash flow streams, but also some development, some capital appreciation, etc. So you know, those would be uh, instruments that would have a slightly higher risk and return potential. And then right at the extreme, you know, you've got very economically sensitive assets such as commodities or shipping, for example, you know, which we would expect to perform well in a positive growth environment and maybe rising inflation. So the real asset universe can really uh, encompass all sorts of different risk return dynamics. But our, if you're asking how do we expect the fund that we have built to perform, well, we expect that to deliver approximately uh, two-thirds of the volatility, uh, so the risk of equity markets, but a return just under, so a UK CPI plus 4% return over the medium to long term. So in our mind, quite an attractive risk-adjusted return, and it helps bring in something into portfolios that uh, you know can help in that overall 
uh, objective of enhancing risk-adjusted returns. Okay, well, let's stay on the um, real assets fund. And I think you've kind of set out exactly what you're trying to achieve um, uh, when you run it. How do you source new ideas? Um, You know, what's your starting point? Um, And then what constraints do you put on your investment process? Yeah, good question. You know, we've spoken a little bit about the the, the total addressable market here, multiples of trillions. Now, you know, the challenge for us as portfolio managers is to stay true to uh, the real asset ethos, but also be able to run the strategy in a daily dealing, open-ended fund format. Uh, And there's a couple of things that uh, help us do that. We've left the universe purposely broad. So those five core real asset classes is broad, big opportunity set. And we've also left uh, the available uh, instruments that we can invest in broad. So we can invest in open-ended active funds. We can invest in passives, be that ETFs or uh, passive funds. We can invest in closed-end investment trusts, which we have significant exposure to. Uh, and we can come on to talk about you know, the relative merits of closed-end listed vehicles, the potential sort of lock-up private equity vehicles. We can invest in uh, direct stocks, leveraging off the in-house uh, research team, uh, and we can invest in uh, direct bonds or indeed structured products, generally leveraging off the, the, the fixed income team. So you know, there's a couple of things that are really, really important, broad universe and broad investment vehicle, which allow us to run the fund effectively. In terms of idea generation, there's a big universe out there. And one of the things that we spent a lot of time doing prior to launch of the fund was categorizing that universe correctly, using the various data providers, be it Morningstar, Bloomberg, etc., to get to, okay, what is the defined universe, screening for strategies and funds and instruments which we think look attractive, and doing further work. James and myself must have done well over 200 individual company meetings prior to launch of the fund to get to grips with the investment universe and understand the different dynamics. So let's take some real examples um, of asset classes. And I you know, you put out quarterly, your quarterly reports, which I read with great interest, and we'll put them in the um, show notes of this. But you are interested in music royalties, aircraft leasing, renewables. Let's, but let's take music royalties, for example. Mm-hmm. What's the investment case? Yeah, music royalties is, 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 is really interesting because uh, one of the things that we try and find, and you know, I think you do want to be very careful of in this day and age, is trying to find assets, industries, etc., which... Uh, have been able to cope with or been through digital technology disruption. Now, music royalties is a prime example of where there was a music industry uh, for you know uh, decades. Now, along comes the internet, and suddenly, you know, with mediums such as Napster, etc., every single artist's music is suddenly available free online. You know, that was uh, an absolute sort of destroyer for many of the. Uh, royalty streams that artists receive for their content. Who got screwed over that? Was that the artists themselves or the, the producers who were taking quite a big cut? Was there a disintermediation? Yeah, the, uh, both, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. You know, artists, if you look at the sort of revenue model for uh, a songwriter, artist, etc., it really revolves, or it certainly has done until the last few years, around touring and live shows. Yes, you've got to put, put out the material to raise your profile and people listen to it, but that doesn't genuine that hasn't historically generated you any income. It's the tour off the back of it which has been essential in order for you uh, as an artist to to generate an income. Now there's obviously the sort of top decile of artists who are generating, you know, super you know sales on millions of records, etc. But the sort of ongoing music industry per se really struggled with this internet and you know how it disrupted the business, the royalty streams, the income, etc. Now 
what's transpired over the last few years is you know uh, iPhones and then we had Apple you know Apple Music and people started paying for music etc. But then what's really sort of accelerated it is is streaming, right? You know, for, so so be it Apple uh, Music or be it Spotify etc. Suddenly there is a revenue line for artists via streaming and people uh, and the move to mobile. Most people around the world have a mobile and work and work out that you know either whether it's free streaming with adverts or paid streaming at $10, £10, £15 uh, per, per month for pretty much every single you know album you've ever wanted to listen to is a pretty good deal. And as, you know, if you go around and you have to walk around uh, uh, pretty much any, any country and you see everybody on mobile phones, that has led to a real uh, regeneration in uh, the music industry and their ability to uh, generate income uh, from their content. So that's, as I said, the longevity of a Elton John or a Fleetwood Mac or, you need me, Rolling Stones. You know, this is timeless music that people are going to listen to. I think the stat is, you know, over 70% of the streamed music uh, globally tends to be classics, right? People like listening to things that they know. And particularly, Who doesn't like listening yeah, to and Elton it, John? And it's also the interesting thing about it is it's completely economically insensitive. Arguably, you could say, having just been through our lockdown here in the UK, people have listened to maybe more music than they have that they were doing previously. I don't know. But the, the, the point is, there's no particular economic sensitivity to it. So, so you've got proven uh, cash flow streams based off artists that people want to listen to. Now, that is an incredibly attractive underlying asset to own. Who structures these things? Though? Where do you go? I mean, presumably, you need to be careful of um, you know, how you access those. Um, so that's streams. where. So, so we would not it's exactly. So we have identi- We would identify music royalties as an attractive asset. Uh, we would not classify ourselves as uh, you know an industry specialist to be able to go wade through all the legals, the terms, etc. To to to, to, to realise this, so we would invest in a uh, hypnosis songs fund, for example, run by music. Uh, industry veterans who understand and have access to the songwriters and artists because this isn't just a this isn't just something you can go outside and pick up you know you need people are uh, are very wary should we say of selling their catalogue and their life's work to anybody so you know you need to be you need to be with specialists who know the space well and you know who are able to realize value and and manage those catalogues and artists to to the to the to the to their best ability. And turning tack a little bit, let's talk about renewables because again, yeah. renewables is a is a, a, a large part of your um, universe. Yeah. Um, it's also you know, it has arguably been supported for the last um, fifteen years by government mm-hmm. um, handouts. As governments roll back their handouts, are you starting to see some? Um, sort of interesting investment opportunities. Mm-hmm. I think the renewables are very, you know, a hot, hot topic, should we say, and, and I think uh, without doubt, probably over the, the medium to long term, it's, it's going to provide some, you know, really interesting and uh, fruitful investments. Uh, you've hit the nail on the head, though, that, that there are issues with the renewables, which is, which is the subsidy regime and how that interacts with, you know, an, an economic return. Um, I think one of the things that is perhaps becoming clear as we emerge from the government lockdown and hopefully recover from the impact of the virus is that a huge fiscal response from governments, certainly in the West, to stimulate economies will be focused on areas of the uh, of of the market and in, uh, in terms of uh, impact on more sustainable business practices. And I think 
you know, the decarbonisation theme is, is, is very much intact. What we're, what we, what I suppose there's yeah. a difference between growth uh, and returns, yeah. There is definitely. Now, we, you know, we, we, we are, there is, there's, there's undoubtedly a difference there. And one of the things that we're nervous on, if you think about returns here, is uh, the power price, right? So uh, if you are a renewable power generator, well, what's the thing you're selling? You're selling power at the end of it. Now, if that power price falls, be it through oversupply of renewables, be it through lack of demand due to economic slowdown, be it through any other um, factor, you know, you are going to uh, suffer because what you are selling is going down in price. So if you ask us, you know, where do we see some risks in the renewable space? Well, we see some risks in uh, companies which just own and operate a wind farm or a solar park. You know, their underlying earnings and indeed their valuation is based on what they can sell that power on. Now, there are subsidy regimes that have supported that earnings power and the valuation. Those roll off over time. I mean, we're not talking imminently, but we're talking over 10, 15 years. And then it's going to be very, very interesting to see what the, uh, you know, how, how, how these companies operate. Now, that's a risk. That's one area of risk and something we're a little bit uh, nervous of, but where do we see opportunity? Well, we see opportunity in the development, right? So if you're an Orsted, you know, big, big global wind leader, the development offshore wind, you know, they they, they spun out of Scandinavia, Denmark, I believe, and, um, you know, are now now operating globally. And it's very interesting to see that they've just agreed a, uh, a long-term PPA, so a power purchase agreement, to sell their power in Taiwan to Taiwan Semiconductor Group, right? Mm. So, you know, there is a big, big corporate, one of the sort of best, arguably, in their field in the world. And what the, why do they want to deal with Austin? Well, they want to be able to say that X percent of the power that we use to produce our goods is provided by renewable sources. So we see that as the market, and that's what's going to develop. It's not so much reliant on government subsidy, but corporates step in and say, okay, well, you want... X percent of our power produced renewably, and we are prepared to give you a contract for five to ten years, or instead for you to, to deliver that to us. And we think that's a that's a big and growing opportunity. So, and where do you think they sit then within is that the uh, within the core part or the cyclical part of your portfolios? Or yeah, good question. I mean that that pro- depends. Uh, probably more in the cyclical part, if we're, if we're honest. You know, because uh, you know, so with its infrastructure for a start, it's in renewables, but you know that the. the it, it, it depends on the economic sensitivity, but probably with the development of the assets rather than the operating, we see that as, as, as a little bit more cyclical. It doesn't have, cyclical does not have to mean uh, necessarily economic sensitivity. There's just some more risk, should we say, to the long dated cash flows. Going back to your five categories, I think people will be very aware of what infrastructure is, what commodities are, what property is. Um, what about asset finance? Yeah, asset, yeah, yeah good, good, very good question. Asset finance tends to be the equity financing of uh, certain assets, right? So music royalties, one. So we are providing capital to finance the purchase of music royalties. Aircraft leasing would be another one. We are providing equity finance for the purchase of planes, which are then leased, and we receive uh, a cash. So there's a, there's a backing. As a, there's as a backing. It's, it's, it tends to be with the specialist lending tends to be more the debt side. Mm-hmm. Uh, the asset financing or the equity side. The other one is shipping. Hmm. We have got a current investment in a, a shipping company, and they, you know, they reasonably recent listing on the London market, um, and you know they have a portfolio of a diversified portfolio of underlying ships, 
leased out to various contractors and we receive that income. And then turning briefly to the commodity space, mm. um, arguably we've had a lot, the last 75 years, commodity complex has been a terrible place to, for investment returns. Um, can you see that changing? And, and what are the catalysts? Uh, I think uh, you know, you're absolutely right to note that commodities in general, certainly industrial commodities, and indeed the energy complex, has been a very challenging place to invest. Do we see that changing? Well, you know, there is the possibility for that changing. Uh, and one of the things you have to be very conscious of is you know, the valuation of assets. And if um, you know, we had Bill here, our CIO, who, who, you know, who, who provides uh, input to the fund and helps us with our... He's been on. He's been on. Uh, he's been on. There we go. We've heard from Bill. He might have even spoken about the commodity chart that he likes to reference, which is showing that uh, the, the ratio of the commodity market to the S&P I believe it is, is at an all-time low. I, you could argue financial assets all-time high, commodity prices at an all-time relative low between the two. Now, you know that our crystal ball is no better than anybody else's, but that is a very, very interesting chart. And if you look at historically, what that has meant is tended to, it's tended to mean revert over time, should we say. So we're conscious of that. We're also conscious that, you know, there are some big trends in place, be it renewables, be it, you know, slightly slower economy. We're just going through what arguably one of the deepest, you know, economic contractions since, um, you know, the post in the post-war period. So, you know, do we see in the very short term a, a really positive environment for industrial commodities? You know, possibly not. But where we do, where we would start to get more constructive is, is as if this level of unprecedented monetary and indeed fiscal response started to have a, a really positive impact in terms of economic growth and indeed inflation expectations and real inflation. Commodities are an asset class in general that you want to own when inflation is rising or is certainly rising more than is, is currently priced by consensus. That's something that we, we assess on the desk on an ongoing basis something we're very conscious of from an asset allocation perspective and would lead us if we came to that conclusion that inflation was genuinely going to return, the commodities would be a, a, a very attractive asset to own. Well, let's look forward. I mean, what do you think? You've said that um, the uh, universe has developed hugely over, even over the last um, 10 years. Mm. Um, what do you think it looks like in 10 years' time? Do we have more market participants? Are there uh, you know, are there, is there an overallocation of capital perhaps to it, in which case you know, yields come down, returns yeah. come down? Um, what does it look like? Good, good question. I'll, I'll answer with a question back at you. Okay. I think you know, what, 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 the real issue in my mind is the existential crisis for you know, large parts of the active fixed income world. Hmm. If you are an active fixed income manager trying to run money and invest in, say, European corporate bonds. Totally agree. You know, they, 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 you know, they, they, you're in a market where the, the yields are sub one, you've got the cost of the fund, you've got the fees, then you've got to get the clients who are probably going to pay fees on that, etc. So, you know, the return potential there is, is, is negligible. Now, there's lots of structural, unfortunately, regulatory reasons why people have to invest there. Hmm. And After 2000. 11, was it 2011, where you can't, banks essentially can't make markets. C correct. You know, so, so I would say, you know, as long as I would say that there are big issues for those areas in the fixed income world, which should result in capital seeking out more opportunities in the real asset space. And I think what will occur is that the market will continue to develop. 
So both through further listings in the investment trust world, growth in the investment trust world of existing listings, further access to open-ended funds. There's even talk about, uh, you know, we touched on the issues with daily dealing open-ended funds. There's, there's talk of long-life funds coming to the market to, to allow broader investor access to assets which suit, uh, you know, holding for the long term, such as infrastructure. I think there's a huge opportunity in the pension market. You know, you have multiples of billions of pounds sitting in various structures, earning potentially not a very big return. Well, how do you get that capital working in an effective way, supporting the economy and hopefully driving forward uh, some growth and some prosperity for get- generations? So that's my sort of yeah. positive. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, know, well, you, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of capital there which can which can come into this. Do space. you get a sense of where where we are in the pension allocation to real assets? Do you know what the pension allo- current allocation is? And presumably, and and if you follow your theory through on um, um, how torrid the bond market is, particularly in Europe, is yeah, you would see that allocation increase. Yeah, I think that well, without doubt, the allocations are increasing. Hmm. Um, um, there's, there's, there's no doubt about it. And I think infrastructure is a, a big area. And I think well, well, what they're decreasing is the sort of hedge fund arena, which has been disappointing. High fees, disappointing performance. And I think the, the, the point of this, this strategy is, is it should be, I mean, I hope it comes across, it's relatively simple, right? We are providing, you know, it's a long-only return-seeking alternative. We're really just seeking to harvest a risk premium, good real assets, good management teams, only for the long term. Uh, and structure it correctly and tilt it to the right areas at the right time. Now, I think what, what's clear is, you know, that's an attractive feature for long-term capital, be it through investment portfolios at Waverton, be it in pension funds, endowments, etc. Final question, Luke. What advice, and I know you're growing your team here at um, Waverton, but what advice would you give to anyone who's sort of looking, you know, maybe they've just finished university, you know, maybe they're two or three years into their career. What advice would you give them to anyone looking to get into real assets? Well, good question. Um, I would say that the, the absolutely key thing in both just, you know, in the investment world, but also if you wanted to take a keen interest in specific alternatives and real assets is, is to read, 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 right? Read up on everything you can, uh, be it through the FT, Bloomberg, the widely available, you know, blogs. Your quarterlies. Yeah, our quarterlies, sign up. <laughs> you know, we've just done a webinar this week, so please... You know, listen in and, and, and really just try and gauge a clear understanding of what the market is. Read, read, read any, uh, you know, books or articles on the subject. But um, and I suppose if you're talking about uh, specific real assets, you know, I don't think it would hurt to get you know some industry experience. You know, if you could spend you know, if you were pre-university, if you get some work experience on an infrastructure project, you know, what about, you know, working for, you know, one of the companies in, in, in terms of, you know, helping them build a, you know, be it, I mean, one of the big ones in, in, in the UK at the moment, you know, the, the Thames Tunnel, right? Mm. But, you know, get, get, you know, get some long... HS2. HS2, <laughs> we'll let that happen. You know, get some experience working for an actual mm. company in the space. And I think that will stand you in good stead to understand the mechanics of it from the business perspective and not, not solely uh, the market perspective. Luke Hudsmith, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, and our guest this week, Luke Hyde-Smith. If you'd like any more information on the topics covered in the podcast, then please go to our website at waverton.co.uk. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe and rate it and maybe tell your friends.